Welcome to the Dylan Experience. Today's episode 74, and I've got a special guest for you. But before we get to that special guest, make sure you like, follow, subscribe, do all the things that you need to do to stay in touch with us. My guest today is a meditation teacher and mentor. He has spent more than 25 years immersed in the practice of meditation. This span includes leading events of over 100 people, both in person and online. He offers a range of resources that encourage and empower us to consciously link meditation and daily living, which include two online communities. The free one is Living Meditation Network, and the subscription-based one is Online Gatherings, as well as the podcast, Bringing Meditation to Life. I'm excited to share my guest today, Neil McKinley. Did I say that right, Neil? You did, Neil I, McKinley. I probably should have checked beforehand, but I, you know. We've done it now, right at the top <laughs> yeah. of the show. So Neil, tell me and, and tell the listeners, kind of give a deeper introduction to how did you become all that intro says and more, right? And obviously you've done probably much more, but how did you get from, you know, little baby Neil to now <laughs> Neil in person with me here today? Well, you know, I mean, in keeping with kind of the, uh, you know, bringing meditation to life theme, meaning the real world, ordinary world, daily life theme of uh, so much of my work, I mean, my introduction, how I started getting the start point was really very ordinary. Um, I was a teenager and I was interested in music. And one of my favorite bands was and is uh, the Beatles. And so in the back of my mind, I knew the Beatles meditated. Beatles are cool. Beatles meditate. Therefore, meditation must be cool. So that's <laughs> one thread um, that's part of this beginning. And then the other thread is I was a competitive swimmer and I was a competitive swimmer in an era when sports psychology was really just coming into you know, the mainstream. And so I happened to be part of a team where the coaching squad was very open to this kind of stuff. And so we were doing all these things that were a little bit weird back in the day. And it sounds weird to say this because they're so ordinary now, but they were weird back in the day. We were doing visualization. We were doing um, progressive relaxation. We were doing goal setting. And we were away at a swim meet um, one weekend in Vancouver. And one of the coaches taught us how to meditate. And for me, there was a sense of, oh, the Beatles did this. So this must be cool. That was one thing. And there was a sense of, oh, there's there's something in this. And in many ways that, oh, there's something in this is is still the, the draw of the practice for me. And so that was the start point. That was the start gate. I mean, I know I've not answered the fullness of your question of how I got here, but that's the start point. You're getting there. Yeah. Keep, feel free to keep going. Well, so, you know, I started, you know, this dating myself, we're back probably somewhere in the early to mid eighties with this. And I continued with the practice, just feeling a, like it was cool and B like there was something compelling in retrospect. I'm not sure I was actually meditating. I think I spent a lot of time with my eyes closed, sitting still, which, you know, probably not in the world causing a lot of harm. So that's a good thing. But about 30 years ago, I started to um, study and practice in a series of two successive communities. Um, I started to train in meditation. Uh, both of these communities were rooted in Tibetan Buddhism. Both of these gave me opportunities to engage formal curriculum, you know, do formal study and do long retreats, meaning, you know, in-depth practice. 
And uh, around about 2005, um, after I was, uh, after my swimming career ended, I got up on the pool deck and started a coaching career. And in about 2004, 2005, my uh, coaching career quickly, suddenly came to an end. And literally, I was sitting at the kitchen table with my head in my hands um, saying, you know, what am I going to do? And my wife walked by and she said, you know, you're trained in meditation. Why don't you try teaching meditation? And I started. And, you know, that was the beginning of, you know, teaching career that's now 15, 16, 17 years old. Is it, thank God for, you know, having a, a partner that just recognizes what, what you're good at. You know, like I, how many times I've been in that situation where my wife looks at me and says, why don't you do this? And I look at myself, I'm like, why the hell did I not think of that? Yeah. You know, just like that we, I'll always kind of think this, but I think we are so blind to ourselves until yeah. we really put ourselves with other people that can recognize what we're good at and what, what we represent ourselves as. And it's so, it's just always so fascinating to hear simple stories like, wow, you know, like his wife told him what he's really good at and he could have recognized that, but we've all been there. You know, I, yeah. I love that. And it's, I mean, it's very interesting. I literally was at the kitchen table with my head in my hands. And the gesture for those who are listening is my hands at the side of my head. And I vividly remember. And so it's actually like I have blinders on literally have, you know, what am I going to do? Oh my gosh, my plans aren't working out. What am I going to do? And my wife literally just walked by. I don't think she paused. It was just, you're trained to meditate. Why don't you teach meditation? (laughs) Okay. It's fa- it's fascinating, isn't it? So yeah. tell me, tell me like you, you mentioned earlier, like what you thought was meditation back then was like sitting there and, you know, being still, right. And being, yeah. closing your eyes and being still versus what you do now. Right. Obviously there's a difference. Yeah. So when, when you describe what meditation really is to people, cause I feel like there's probably a pretty big misconception Um, not far off from what you started with. I feel like people just don't understand what it really means. So can you kind of elaborate on that? Tell me from, from your experience and maybe experience from listening to other people describe it, what is meditation and, and what does it really do for you? Well, you know, I think you put your finger right on a really important point. Um, I think that there's there's a lot more talk about meditation in mainstream society now than there was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And I think that's a really good thing, unreservedly a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I, I've, in my experience, a lot of this talk is um, presents partial truths of meditation or statements about meditation that reinforce uh, misconceptions. And that may not sound like a big deal. Yet, if I took all the people I taught uh, in, over the years that I've taught to meditate, and all the people among that group who finish a class or a workshop or a course and feel like, yeah, I'm going to continue doing this. And then all the people in that number who say, I'm going to continue doing this, who actually don't continue doing this. I think the main reason why people's meditation practice comes to a dead end is misconceptions. That's my experience. Misunderstandings, thinking I'm going to get this, thinking it's going to be like this and finding out it's like that. 
And so a lot of my work involves really simplifying the practice so that I can articulate it in plain language in a kind of elevator speech, right? You know, here we are on the third floor, you've got to the ground floor to tell me what meditation is. And so one of the simpler ways, more direct ways that I talk about it is it's simply a practice of connection. It's a practice that develops our conscious connection with our lives as they are. Now, the first thing that I say to that is like, why would I want to do that? I came to meditation to get away from my life as, as it is. You know, I want something different. I want to get rid of all the bad and increase the good. And meditation is going to help me do that, right? So meditation is a practice of connection that helps us develop our conscious relationship with our lives as they are in this moment. And some interesting things happen as this um, relationship deepens. One is we settle into what's going on for us we actually settle into whatever is happening, good, bad, happy, sad, easy, hard. We settle into that and we find we have a capacity, an ability to rest there, to be at ease there. And I mean, what a relief, you know, here's life, it's going off on all cylinders, it's really hard, it's really challenging. I can sit down and meditate. And it doesn't change the fact that it's challenging, but it lets me find, lets me touch into an innate sense of rest and ease and well-being in the midst of all the kerfuffle. That's like, oh my goodness, thank you. So that's one thing that comes out of meditation. The second thing that comes out of meditation comes out of developing this conscious relationship is as we settle more, as we rest more within what is happening for us in this moment, we actually find, um, we actually begin to experience insights into what's going on for us. We actually begin to get, you know, flashes of deeper knowing about what's going on in our life right now. And these are actually very helpful in beginning to, you know, find our next step in our life, guide us into our lives in a particular way. So those are kind of the two benefits. We find a sense of ease and well-being, and we find a sense of insight. Now, that ease and well-being and that insight, they're always there for us. But through meditation, we deepen our, through developing a deeper conscious sense of connection with our life, we deepen that our relationship with those qualities. It's fascinating. I, I mean, I, I, ha I guess I have such a simplistic kind of view of it from, from just my end. I, you know, I, I, I'm a mental health coach and I don't, I don't practice meditation. Um, I practice breathing and that's, you know, in some ways my own, you know, I, I could look at it from your definition and recognize that I do have some meditation aspects to what I do with breathing because it's very much a connective, uh, it's a connective scenario of me trying to connect with my body um, but there's, you know, there's so much more to it than, than what I understand. And I fully recognize my own ignorance in this situation. Um, and I, I think it's fascinating that there's so much more to it than what I thought of, you know, initially kind of coming into this, uh, podcast. And I love that one. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious, what do you think is, you know, from your practice of working with so many people and working with yourself, like, what do you see as kind of that, that disconnect or the obstacles that kind of sit in the way of people really getting to that connection point mm -hmm. or that ease and, you know, the, the two, 
two main things that you were talking about. What do you see as being that kind of uh, disturbance that causes people to say, you know what, this is stupid, right? Walk away. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one big one is this notion that is so common. People say this to me so much that meditation somehow involves an empty mind. Somehow meditation is about empty mind. It's having no thoughts. And so people sit down to meditate and all of a sudden they discover they got lots of thoughts. And the conclusion is it's natural, right? Okay, if meditation is about no thoughts and I got lots of thoughts, well, I must be bad at meditation. So it's not working for me. (laughs) Well, meditation is not about having no thoughts. I mean, sometimes you will hear the phrase empty mind and that is um, appropriate, accurate and applicable. It doesn't mean what we think it means, but... um, Sometimes you will hear that phrase in the tradition, but it doesn't mean that there's an absence of thoughts in our um, state of mind, in our state of being, in our meditation practice. In fact, you know, those thoughts are typically one of the things that we, or our relationship with those thoughts are one of the things that we're working with in meditation. I don't know about you, but I tend to get very clingy with thoughts. Yep. So up comes a thought about dinner, and I'm like, what am I going to have for dinner? Why am I thinking about dinner? Someone else should think about dinner. And we develop our capacity to recognize that and relax that and bring our attention back to, let's just say, the body for now. So to let our attention shift from that to this. So the fact that we have thoughts is actually somewhat good news. It gives us a practice to do. Okay, I'm gripping on to thoughts. I see that. I'm going to relax that. I'm going to bring my attention back, which lets the thoughts just continue to do their thing. So the fact that we have a lot of thoughts or a little few thoughts or no thoughts is really not of particular consequence. And a lot of people come into meditation believing that that's the case and that the case is that it is of consequence. And so they get discouraged. They just get disheartened. No one likes being you know, beaten over the head with uh, a sense of not doing it right for very long. And so they stopped doing it. That's one thing. I think the other thing is, um, you know, the notion that we're going to get somewhere with meditation and we're going to get something with meditation. I mean, we live in a consumer society and that's the way we think. That's the air that we breathe. I give you a dollar 50, you're going to give me something back in return. And we bring that into meditation. And what that does is it kind of short circuits that our willingness or capacity to just connect with this, right? Like, well, where's the bliss? Well, that's not really what we're concerned with. Like, are you a little bit hot? Connect with that. Are you a little bit nervous? Connect with that. Are you a little bit frustrated? Connect with that. You know, that's very challenging. That kind of immediacy, in my experience, is very challenging for us. And I think for good reason, because again, I think the the social air that we breathe is is very different than that. And so those are kind of, they're related, those two. But I think those two are really, really big misconceptions that people come in with and that undermine our uh, spending the time necessary to develop this kind of connection that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I really, I really relate to the the consumer, uh, the aspect that you brought up because I, I recently had a client come to me um, and ask her, you know, what what is it that you want from me? Um, what is it that you're you're kind of looking for from me? And she's like, I I want peace. Um, and I, you know, I, I I'm always kind of taken back by that because if if I could provide peace through 
all of the traumas that people bring to me, um, man, I'd be, I'd be a God, right? Like, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I, I'd be celebrated for, for lifetimes. Right. But what I provide, you know, is it's different from meditation, but it's still the same. It's similar concept. I provide connection. I provide a relationship of, uh, that's healthy, right? Because I provide the empathy that they've been providing to so many people for so long that they it's burned themselves out on the idea of empathy. Um, and so I provide that empathy, but I put boundaries on it. I put, you know, relatable boundaries that say, you know what, we can't do certain things. And so like the, one of the first things I had to tell her was you may not be able to find peace in the place that you are. You may have to actually embrace conflict, right? And, and you may actually have to embrace this, this thing that you are actually, uh, you are actually kind of trying to find the opposite of. And so you don't even, you don't even recognize that the thing that you are looking for has a requirement. It's there's, there's almost like you have to earn this place among the peaceful and the blissful. Right. And, you know, I, 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 I want to go back to something you said earlier of like, nobody wants to be beaten up by the head by something that they're they're not good at. And I laughed at that because I did jujitsu for like eight years. Right. The first six months, I never won anything, right? And so, like, I'm I'm sitting here for six months as a white belt, and I remember this so clearly. I remember the first time I actually beat someone. It was about it was like six months, um, but I remember going and just thinking, I am absolutely atrocious, but I didn't care whether it was a you know I'm beating myself up or not. I'm just like I'm gonna figure it out, right? And so, I remember arm barring this guy for the first time ever. He was a a new white belt, right? He was me six months prior. And I felt so good about myself until I realized he's me Mm -hmm. a long time ago. And now I have to go fight this fucking purple belt, right? That kicks my ass every time. And what did he do to me? He, he choked me with my wrist and, and, and did a triangle on my, on my neck and my wrist. And so like his his balls, right. I'm going to get weird here. His balls were literally on my chin, right? He made me feel exactly how I felt six months prior when I first started. Right. And I kept going. Right. And, and it's like, if, if you're not willing to step into this, right. Like this is what I think, you know, we, I, I talk a lot about trauma and mental health. If you're not willing to really step into this mentality of, I have to do this this courage, right? It's not, a, it, it's not this, I don't want to make people feel shameful or guilty of not doing it. It's you have to step into the idea that the courage to step into something you actually, you absolutely suck at and you were terrible at might be the object or the practice or the idea that might bring you peace, might bring mm-hmm. you bliss. It might bring you all the things that you're looking for, but you got to fucking earn it, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you kind of talked about that because that's, that's, I think the biggest obstacle in all of this, right? Trauma, you know, trauma itself is an obstacle, but you're certainly not going to be able to do it alone, how you're doing it now, right? Like I've, I've been there, you know, people who've listened to this podcast for a long time recognize I live that, right? I lived that for 20 years. I'm sure you've had your own, you know, issues with trauma. It, because I think everybody does. And 
I, I just find it so valuable that you and I, you know, and I always do this on this podcast where you and I have relatable experiences in completely different circumstances. Mm-hmm. I love that. It yeah. make, makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really interesting to me. I find it, you know, it's, uh, uh, one of the people I work with, she has this thing she she does when her mind is blown and she puts a, a cupped set of fingers up to her head. So people who are listening and kind of, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, the same experience, same insights, same perspectives in very different, different fields. That will never, that will never stop fascinating me when, no. when stuff like that happens, because, and I think this is what this, what I try to do with this podcast is remind people that like we may be different, right? We may be man versus woman, right? Uh, black versus white, uh, uh, transgender uh, versus non-transgender, right? Binary versus non-binary. I, it doesn't matter, but we have the same thing. We have emotions. We have the same kind of bodies, right? We just have different circumstances, different experiences, but that doesn't make us all that different, right? You, mm-hmm. me, we're not that different, right? And and I don't think the the conversation between male and female is all that different either. I just think the circumstances make the the cultural experience vastly different, right? But we still feel the same shit, right? Yeah. And I and I think we need to really get we need to bring people on board with that and and recognize, oh wow, we all feel the same things. It's it's remarkable when I when I work with men and women, same shit, same same emotions, right? Same emotions. We have the same conversations. It's just different experiences. That's it. Which is, I mean, I guess one of the things that, you know, we're talking about here with my experience in meditation is we come into the room for the very first time for our very first workshop in meditation. We've got all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different um, experience, life experiences. And yet we have these common misunderstandings. We have these common responses to beginning to meditate, you know, and so on and so forth there. It's like, we're utterly unique and necessarily different from one another. And at the very same time, so similar. Yep. So alike. It's like an, and it's a conjunction, right? Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not a, it's not a, but scenario. It's an and scenario. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I love that. Well, I, I, you know, I, I want to, I want to hear more about kind of how do you build a community in terms of when, when you're talking about building a community, community in terms of meditation, Mm-hmm. What is what is your kind of primary uh, kind of gathering with that? Like, what are you trying to ultimately do with that? Is it is it like are you trying to bring people together weekly, monthly, yearly? Yeah. Um. And and is it is it a learning experience for you? And I'm and I'm more specifically not for the community, but for you. Like, how do you kind of approach since you've done this multiple times? It sounds like. What is your goal with this? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. And I think um, that question begs that we go back with your permission. Absolutely. Let's go back. So I gave you a little bit of a sense of how I started and what the trajectory of events was that brought me to teaching meditation in general. And what I'd like to talk about now is what has brought what specifically has brought me to presenting meditation and working in community 
this is the, the your, your question is one I want to return to here because I think it's really important. What specifically has brought me to working, presenting meditation and working with community in the way that I do now today? So I talked um, in the intro really about myself as a teacher and mentor of meditation. Those were kind of the, that's kind of what I was talking about. You know, mm -hmm. here's how I became a teacher. You know, I think it's also important to emphasize that I'm a student of this work. I am a student of this work. I was and continue to be and presumably will continue to be a student of this work. And as I said, that meant that um, I was involved in these two successive communities over the years. And around about 2016, so about five or six years ago, my relationship with the second of these communities started to come undone to a certain extent. I started to feel uncomfortable with the way the leader was relating to students, specifically senior students, longstanding students, close students, just like myself. Um, over the next couple of years, I became increasingly uncomfortable as it dawned on me or it became apparent to me that in spite of what I believed, in spite of what I'd been told, and in spite of what I told others as a leader in that community, what was driving that situation was not the teachings of meditation and not the practices of meditation, not the development and well-being of the students. But to my eye, what was driving that situation were the self-centered impulses of the leader. And the extents that he was willing to go in order to um, assert these created an environment that for me was characterized by manipulation and disempowerment and disrespect. And to give one example of, um, let's say, manipulate, well, it's one example of all of these, you know, he was a master of what I call the bait and switch. Promising one thing, getting people to come gather to that, and then pulling it away and saying, we're going to do something different and expect everyone to just go along silently, which, you know, maybe one might say, well, that's not too bad. Like, okay, he doesn't, he's not very good with agreements. But when this happens over and over again, over a period of years, and when plans and schedules and lives are upended repeatedly, and this is an authority figure that, you know, we're supposed to trust or that we have trust in who seems to have little concern about the consequences of his actions, the effect is actually crazy making. Yeah. And so through all 2019, I struggled um, with what I now realized I was part of. And one of the big things that I struggled with was this sense that my own inner knowing, which we were talking about a few minutes ago, that innate sense of what's going on and what's appropriate and inappropriate. My own inner knowing was being constantly undermined in that situation. And so I struggled. And at a certain point, I was so mentally and physically compromised. I was having stomach aches. I had, uh, my body was tense all the time. I was depressed. I was anxious. I wasn't sleeping. At a certain point, I was so compromised that I had to leave. And so I did. In February, 2020, I left. And this difficult choice, but necessary choice, um, it opened up not just a path of um, healing and recovery. It opened up an exploration and discovery that continues to this day and that speaks to the question you've raised. Like what is kind of my guiding principle when I, I'm coming together with people and community and teaching meditation. So 2020, early 2020, I leave this community that I've been part of, leave this leader that I've had a relationship with for 20 years. And the relief is tremendous, but the sense of loss is overwhelming. Right. Um, I've lost my path. I've lost my peers. I've lost livelihood, trust, confidence, direction. I mean, the, it just goes on and on. And I had no idea what to do with this. 
And there's at least two things worth noting here that came out that touch upon what we've been talking about and touch upon the question you've asked. One is that I meditated. For whatever reason, I can't actually consciously explain to you why I turned to what was familiar and almost every day I meditated. And I started to settle into what was happening for me, that lostness, not changing it, not getting rid of it, but settling into the hard work of settling into. And out of this, there were these experiences of insights that often spoke directly to what was going on for me, directly to that lostness, which suggested an aspect of meditation that I'd never really thought about before. I'd never really seen one in which I let the insights that come out of settling actually guide me into my life. And that's what I'd started to do because I had no idea what else to do. If I meditated, and just to bring this down to a very ordinary level, if I meditated and I realized I was tired, I'd try to rest. If I was lonely, I'd reach out. If I felt stuck, I'd seek trauma therapy to help with that stuckness. It was that ordinary and mundane. So that's one thing that kind of came up in this situation. The second thing that came up is that I did uh, a lot of this meditating in community. Um, with the end of that difficult relationship and the arrival of COVID in early 2020, um, my teaching livelihood vanished. And so I started offering something online that's now the community has evolved into the community known the, uh, as the online gatherings. And in doing so, I saw the brilliant and articulate and the, the vulnerable and adaptive ways that others were engaging meditation and the challenges of their lives. And under the influence of these two things, meditation and community, I found myself actually moving through the grief a little bit. I found depression, anxiety, stomach aches, you know, insomnia reducing a little bit. So I wasn't getting over it. I still have some pretty bad days, but I was finding a way through. And what meditation was doing was it was beginning to heal my relationship with my own inner knowing that had been so damaged and undermined. And what community was doing was affirming and modeling the existence of this inner knowing in just by showing up and being the brilliant people that they are innately are. And so you ask a question about like kind of what guides me when I'm meeting, drawing, gathering people together in a community setting. That's what guides me is our innate um, wisdom, our innate clarity, our innate uh, tenderness, our innate responsiveness. What guides me is what the Buddhist tradition calls Buddha nature is a sense of you know, the basic resourcefulness of our human person. And yes, this resourcefulness is often distorted and covered over and all that kind of stuff. And that's what we will work with moving down the road. But the organizing principle for me, the starting point, the first step on the, our path together is that. Basic brilliance, basic okayness, basic sanity, basic clarity, basic wisdom that inner wisdom and inner clarity that I felt was so profoundly undermined with such devastating consequences in the community that I was uh, formerly part of. I feel like this is the kind of story that can be so relatable in so many ways, right? Like we, so many people find themselves in marriages that are the same kind of relationship of undermined, um, you know, toxic relationships, toxic uh, relationships with family members, you know, that it's, that there's so many different ways that that can be, uh, conveyed in different ways. Um, and I, I, I love that you've brought that to our attention and, and brought that here. Um, I 
you know, one of the things you said is like this, this intrinsic recognition of what I wanted, right? Like that, that feeling, um, I use that practice in, in one of the exercises that I do with a lot of my clients is like values, right? Rather than tell them like, you know, here are what values I think you have. It's here's a list of values. Here's a list of words. When you read that word, when you recognize the definition of that word, what do you feel, mm. right? Like, what is that intrinsic feeling that you, that you get when you read that word? And do you have a connection with it, right? Like empathy, right? Some people are like, I'm an empath, right? Thinking like, I'm really empathetic, right? And, and maybe they have that misconstrued or not, but the, the reality is, is that they have an extreme, uh, a really tangible feeling when they pull out this word empathy, right? I am empathy, right? Hmm. But then I'm like, I know you do, but right. <laughs> like, and then I'm like, you know, when you look at the idea of empathy, you give that em empathy to others. And the answer is always yes. Right. I love giving my empathy to others. Now, do you give it to yourself? And they're always like, Ugh, no. Right. I'm like, can you call yourself an empathetic person then? Right. And then like, it just opens up this perspective of, I'm not atoning to my own value, right? And this, this intrinsic feeling and this recognition of I am this value then finally gets realized of I'm not actually operating how I should be, hmm. right? Because my body's telling me I should be operating with empathy, but I'm not giving myself empathy. So how am I, how am I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing what my body's telling me to do. Mm -hmm. And so like I use that and it's so, Again, so fascinating that we different, completely different circumstances, but kind of the same recognition of I've, I've used that for years, right? I'm only 32 and I recognize that very young of, I have to do like my body recognizes what's right and wrong. And I was lucky enough to kind of have the path written for me, uh, that allowed me to recognize that my body's going to tell me a lot about what I do mm -hmm. and what is, what is right and wrong. And, you know, I, I, I do some, some work on the side for a company that a long time ago, I actually had a really bad experience, two of them, mind you, um, two experiences that actually made me step away. Um, because the leader, very similar situation was the leaders were, they had their way and they brought me in to do a specific thing and it didn't work. Right. It, it didn't work for them. Right. I was ready. I was willing. I was like, here, I built everything for you. Just need to put it into practice, but I wasn't given the opportunity. And so finally I'm like, my body's telling me this is bullshit. I don't like it. I've done all, I've done all the due diligence to make this work. Right. I'm even, I'm now looking at myself, like, am, am I sure that I've done all the due diligence? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm like asking other people, like, is, is there something wrong here? Like, am I doing, am I crazy? Right. Like, all the crazy making like stuff. Yeah. I'm like, am I, I'm not crazy. My body's telling me like, I've done everything I can. I've communicated with multiple people about what, what can I do? Not working. Right. So finally, like I left, you know, and, and I left twice. I ended up leaving twice because two different people in the organization kind of made everything life, a living hell. Both of those people, one was 
bought out as a partner. The other one literally walked out because he was asked to do something, just walked away. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I mean, I could have, I could have told you that was going to happen, but you know, <laughs> at the same time, like they, they asked me to come back, uh, in, in the same position that both times kind of ruined my experience. And I, and I've taken it as an opportunity to recognize I can do good with this. I can, I can provide exactly what I wanted to provide in the beginning um, and, and develop something that I actually really enjoy. And so, you know, maybe I took a chance. We'll see how it pans out, but at the same time, like it's, it's still a situation that I really enjoy, you know, and it's something that like my, my body tells me like, this is, this is something that I want to do. I want to have, I want to have this in my life, whether it's with this company or not depends, right. We'll, we'll see how the future pans mm-hmm. out so far. It's been great. Um, and I'm going to continue to make it great, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it happens so often. And I think we deny our body's experience to make the conscious and kind of cultural, uh, and so, you know, the social aspect of our experience to make it comfortable for everyone else. Yeah. And we, we deny ourselves and it, it just, it never works out in the end, you know? No. And you know, the experience I just shared is a great example of that, because I think one of the things that happened is, um, you know, the, the, the leader basically co-opted any sense of what was appropriate and what was right. And, uh, you know, in order to kind of stay in that environment, one had to, as you said, kind of dismiss or push away in order to kind of stay in line, kind of fulfill the social contract. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I love the exercise you talked about because that's now, you know, really one of the central elements of, you know, the work I'm doing specifically in this um, online gatherings community that I've, that I've mentioned before is rather than looking to a teacher to define what our path is, rather than looking to a tradition to define what our path might be, you know, acknowledging the value of both of these, you know, they can be very supportive, they can be very helpful, they can, you know, be tremendous resources for us. But rather than putting those to the center, at the center of our path and journey as meditators and as human beings, one of the things we've been trying to do is putting our own embodied wisdom, I use the word, the phrase embodied resonance, like beginning to develop a deeper and more faithful relationship with that and allowing that to guide us. And I love how in your the situation you were uh, sharing with us that you were able to tune back in and, you know, it was like, yeah, I've done everything. I've done everything. I'm doubting, but I, I can sense that I've done everything that I needed to do. All my due diligence has been checked off. Like that's so great. One that you're willing and able to check back in with that. And two, that, you know, you're able to re access that as a resource to say, yep, Dylan, you're on the right path here with what you've done. Let's just wait and see how the rest bands out. Well, I, I definitely needed people in that, in that regard. Right. And I, I think that's kind of a, a rule. Um, I, I sat with that the first time for like nine months. Um, I sat with it for nine months and, and I questioned it, you know, every time I went into work or every time I was thinking about it, I questioned it. I was like, am I, am I the problem here? Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I forced myself to really think about that. 
Um, and I, it came to a point where, you know, I, I found different, I was like, okay, if, if I can't go to the source of the problem, I'm going to go above it, you know, and I, I don't make that decision likely. I, I came from the military. I'm still in the military. And so that idea of going above the chain of command, not a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. But if necessary, absolutely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I'll take the heat if, if that's the case. Um, you know, and I was still early on in my military career. So I, I kind of really respected the idea of you don't go above, you know, you, cause you, I'll get in trouble, right. Yeah. If I go above this person's head, um, cause I had done it in the military before and it got me in a lot of trouble, right. You know, you, you, you don't, you don't do that. You don't go to the E seven if the E six can handle the problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I sat with it, felt crazy. Talk to my wife about it. Talk to friends about it. You know, I talked to uh, people that worked there about it. Um, I talked to the person that was causing the problem and just didn't get through to him. You know, and then I finally talked to the the general manager, and then I talked to the owners, um, and it finally came to a point where, you know, they did something, um, and and solve the problem, but then created a new problem with who they replaced him with. And so, mm-hmm. you know, but I didn't reckon that, that didn't be, that didn't pan out for a couple, you know, a couple months. So relatively when I actually went to them, it solved the problem, which was great, but I sat with it for a long time. Yeah. Right? And I think people end up doing that and, you know, like talking back about it um, can be kind of misunderstood because if I had told the story differently, someone might think I'm a narcissist or, or, you know, something, something of the sort where like, I didn't give my, I didn't, I was right. They were wrong. I was right. No, I thought I was wrong the whole time. Right. Mm. And it's important to recognize that people do that, right? Like you want to have a conversation with your wife. Some husbands are really going to think about that for a really long time of how do I actually have that conversation? You know, and the, the question of, is he a narcissist or not is, is a really hard, it's a really hard thing to pinpoint. You can't just look at someone and say, because you're not being empathetic to me, mm-hmm. you're a narcissist. I've, I work with people every single day who have, have had relationships with very real and present danger, you know, uh, people that are remarkably dangerous people um, who are not, and I'm not going to say, I want to say legitimately narcissistic. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a, a, a spectrum of, mm-hmm. yeah. of, of the type where there are people who are self-centered, you know, and relatively narcissistic who are still doing great things. Right. Then there you go to the very end of the spectrum, the very opposite and saying, these people are sociopathic, psychopathic, antisocial personality disorders. Um, these guys are terrors, right? Or I shouldn't say just guys, these people are terrors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have to be really cautious when we start having this conversation around like narcissism. And just because we hear a story say, you know, this person is a narcissist or has psychopathic tendencies or anything like that, because we just don't have the capacity to diagnose something like that. Even, even in psychotherapy, 
we struggle to even diagnose that because let's be real, psychopaths and sociopaths rarely enter therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so it's, it's just a really interesting kind of conversation to come to because we, the way we tell stories, especially nowadays with social media and even podcasting, um, you never know what happens with, with how it's taken. Um, and, and to get really clear and present about, you know, how these things happen, it's really giving people the context, you know, like if, if I hadn't discussed that, right. Of I sat with this for nine months or with you, you sat with it for 20 years, right? Like that's, that's a remarkable situation to sit with. And that's when it becomes really interesting is like when that person looks at you and says, you're the narcissist, even though you've sat with this for 20 years and you're like, I thought I was wrong for, for so long. And I've put all of these, all of these consistent behaviors in, in a timeline and looked at this and said, I've brought this to your attention multiple times. And I said, like, this feels wrong to me. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of people think this is wrong. And so it's like really clarifying can you have a conversation about what is right and wrong and determine how to actually clarify that? Because that's really, I think the, the representation of when uh, you can start to define whether a person has narcissistic tendencies or not. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like we got on an interesting topic, obviously because of me, but what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, in my situation specifically, um, I think there's actually two threads that I want to draw attention to here. Um, One is both you and I are talking about, um, one of the things that we're talking about here is accessing inner wisdom, accessing embodied wisdom, accessing somatic knowing. I mean, we're going to use a lot of different phrases, but that's one of the the threads that is is kind of shared that I'm hearing is being shared here. And I'm talking about it from the point of view of meditation. You're talking about it from a point of view of coaching. Um, We're both talking about it with regard to some personal experiences we've had. One of the things that I think is so interesting about our shared experience is that you know, ignore how we're making this discernment, uh, ignore how we are coming to know in a deep embodied sense, what's going on in this, these situations for both of us, it takes time. It takes time. And back to your question, right at the beginning, early on about, you know, some of the obstacles people encounter in um, actually beginning to um, you know, develop a habitual, a regular meditation practice. I think one of the things is the slowness of the process. It the the process of developing a connection with our life, of settling into our life, of receiving life guiding insights about our life, developing a relationship with that inner wisdom, um, is a slow one. And I love that you know both of us in different ways are drawing attention to that fact here. Yeah. Now that's one thing. Yeah, I, I mean it's. I, I think that 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 patience idea is something kind of that's society struggles with. Yeah, you know, there's there's this there's a, everybody wants to be the fastest, right? It's like everybody's a Formula One driver and everybody just wants to be, you know, at the at the, on the podium. Um, and and people will come to me and be like, I want to heal my trauma, and I'm like, strap in, 
<laughs> like, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm blunt and honest about it. I'm like, if you're coming to me thinking I'm, I'm a one-stop shop and you, you take a, take a month out of your life and, and solve your, solve all your problems and your, you know, your, your traumas, that is not how this works. Right. I would no. love to, right. I wish there was an easy button that said, I can solve all your problems, but it's not like that. Right. There's, you know, we have to layer, there's layers, right? Just like considering my life, right? The the layers of my childhood, right? The 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 suicide of my father, the 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 physical abuse as a child that I experienced after that, the the bullying, right? And then processing each one separately in order, right? And how they all interacted, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just one ball of you know shit to deal, to deal with. Um, and then to add on the military and then adulthood and college and how I interacted between all of those. And then my suicide and then having three ACL tears and two reconstructions, you know, and then now I'm into, you know, I'm into my thirties having two, two combat deployments to Afghanistan and so many other things, right. Just dealing with, just looking at that and, and looking at those events specifically is one thing. Right. And that's where everybody likes to focus. It's like, maybe we should really talk about this one event that happened to me at when I was nine years old. And maybe that's the problem. And I'm like, I think it's the start of the problem. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the problem that's exacerbated by how the problem was discussed or not discussed uh, following the event. Right. Because that's where I think CPTSD really comes from is that this lack or inability of expression following traumatic events as a child is really where complex trauma really settles. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you, if you can't do that, that's an entire issue, an entire different issue that is then kind of, I think, exacerbated if all you talk about is the one event. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so there's, there's so much that you are, you're getting into, right? And I talk about values, right? If you don't have a structural idea of how to perceive the world, you're losing, right? Like you are struggling. You are opening up the news every morning and thinking, God, the world is falling apart, you know? And in some ways you could probably look at it and say, yeah, there's, there's some problems, right? But there's been problems since the dawn of man in societies. And now is not, necessarily any worse than it's ever been right the bubonic plague killed a lot of fucking people in relative terms covid did not do that right is covid bad yeah absolutely is you know the war in ukraine bad yeah absolutely but there have been many things that have caused major issues throughout humanity and i think we're sitting pretty good if we're able to sit here and have a podcast right now and you know have <laughs> direct access to water behind me and solid plumbing right a grocery store right down the street right we have really good we're living a really good life right now and so if you don't have a structural idea and infrastructure of how you actually visualize and perceive the world itself uh how you layer on your values in terms of how you operate within that world um how are we supposed to have a conversation about trauma mm-hmm. when, when every day is traumatic to you, right? We need to get, we need to get to a point where we can actually talk and communicate and converse and, and stop making every single day relatively traumatic so that we can actually approach 
what you and I do, right? Where we, where we can actually connect with you, where you can connect with yourself. Um, and, and really that takes time. That takes so takes much time. time. It's so much time. And, and it takes multiple different avenues, I think as well. When people yeah. come to me, I don't want you to just come to me. I'd love you for you to go to Neil. I'd love for you to go. I had, uh, I had a, a woman that did EFT and tapping Lauren. I've had multiple, uh, multiple clients actually go to her and enjoy it. Right. Like I want people to go elsewhere to learn different perspectives because I think perspective is really where it matters. And, and, you know, I mean, there's always the need of different tools in the toolkit. I mean, obviously yeah. I'm sitting here, I have a certain degree of confidence in the value of meditation yeah. to meet the challenges of our lives, because that's kind of how we're talking about it right now. You know, does that mean that it is absolutely the singular um, most appropriate tool in all circumstances? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think it's, um, you know, it's a dangerous cul-de-sac we wander down when we begin to think or propagate that notion. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot with the people that I work with is, you know, okay, is your capacity to be present being exceeded? And is meditation helping developing your capacity to meet that? And if it's not helping right now, if you're, if you're overwhelmed and meditation's not helping you downgrade that sense of overwhelm, well, it might be a sign that there's another tool you need to pick up for a while. You know, whatever it might be, and it's going to be different for all of us. We live in this time where there's so many different modalities and perspectives available to us, which is really, really great. Well, and, and learning how to be overwhelmed is a remarkably, I think, misunderstood skill. Yes. Yes. Because I think, you know, you, you have to, at some point, learn that. And, and well, you don't have to, you, you could live your life without it, but that's, I wouldn't call that a very enjoyable life, but you can very much step into the idea of overwhelming yourself and learning how to manage it. Now, yeah, there's a, there's a big kind of, but in there, right? Big, big, but, um, trauma and the addition of the trigger, um, is a different kind of overwhelm. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the bodily overwhelm, which I've, I'm sure you've seen, um, especially when you're doing very much body focused work, uh, a trauma trigger is a trauma trigger and your mind doesn't control that. It is very much your body. And I don't really like separating the two because they're both the mm -hmm. same thing, but, uh, for, for layman's terms to kind of make it easy for people to understand, you can't consciously control a trauma trigger. Your, your body controls that your amygdala controls that. So, you know, like there's, there's that, but then there's also, you can learn to mitigate those triggers to a, a relatively normal time frame, right. Where you're not triggered for two or three days, mm -hmm. you're, you're triggered for two or three seconds, right. When I came yeah. home from Afghanistan, uh, and I heard fireworks for the first time, my trigger was, you know, five or six hours, right. Now I can go to fireworks and watch them. And every once in a while, I'll feel that big boom, right? That it's not the visual anymore. It's the, it's the feeling where one gets really close to me. It's really loud. Um, but it's also, uh, the, the same kind of impact 
on my body as, as what a mortar feels like when it's hit, when it hits the ground a couple, uh, you know, 50 meters away from you, right. That gets me sometimes. And I look around and I recognize like, Whoa, I got, I'm safe. I'm okay. I'm here. Right. You know, and, and that takes two to three seconds, mm-hmm. not five to six hours anymore. And so I think in, in relative time frames, you can work that down. And I think that's healing when we, when we talk about triggers and we talk about PTSD. Um, what I'm talking about when you feel overwhelmed is how can I allow myself the, the ability to have a lot of things coming at me and sit with it, right? And be okay with that, where I can't solve that problem, can't solve that one. I can't solve this one, even though these two are coming at me pretty hard. That That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the notions we come back to, you mentioned peace a while ago. Yeah. And um, it, it, as you're talking, it's the meditative notion of peace is something that I think about, I talk about a great deal, which I think it's really applicable to what we're talking about here. Because if you go to a talk about meditation, if you watch something on YouTube, if you pick up a book, you know, dollars to donuts, you're going to hear peace before too long. So yeah. what are we talking about when we're talking about meditative peace? Meditative peace is exactly what you described, just described. It's not the absence of overwhelm or, you know, everything's um, exactly as I want it in my life right now. Peace is the ability from the meditative perspective is the ability to settle into, we're coming back to a phrase, words and phrases that I've used a number of times in this conversation. It's the ability to uh, settle into to rest and find ease and well-being within the circumstances of our present life right now, whatever it might be. And it's one of the things I love and value about the practice is the extent to which it develops that capacity. My ability to actually abide with, you know, the challenges and overwhelms and chaos that my life occasionally is. Um, and in some ways, I value that much more than I would probably ever ever value something that could just make life, I don't know, all duckety boo, because that's probably not going to happen. So, you know, th- th- there's this tool, and of course, there's many tools. This tool that can help us move in the direction that you describe, I think, is uh, it's really exciting. It's one of the um, sell points for me with this work. I I would love an easy button. Only because the temporary nature of any problem, I would love an easy button. I would but love an easy button. When I look back at my life, I'm glad I never had one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think about my own recent experience and, you know, I would not want to go through that again and I don't wish it on anybody. And yet um, what has come, let me correct that. What is coming out of it? What is coming out of and a willingness to turn towards it and settle into it and receive the insights that come out of lostness and let this guide me in my life, I mean, is really quite phenomenal. It's really quite phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't, I I wouldn't will it on anyone, but I wouldn't take it away from myself if I had the choice. Yeah. No, you know, and and that's for me, you know, obviously the the people that listen to this podcast know more about my story than, than, you know, you might, but I, I lost my dad to suicide at six years old. And, and to, to be sitting here at 32, you know, I'm, I'm four years away from being the same age he was, 
Mm-hmm. And to recognize that and look back and say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it away from me is I, I think it's a powerful place to sit. And I, I, I genuinely believe that I, I would not allow myself to take it away from myself. If I, if I had the choice, because I'm here, I'm, I'm here in this place, right? I have a three month old little girl. Um, you know, I, I I've got a 10 year old son that's, that's my stepson, but I, I look at him like my son. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got a beautiful family. And even if that gets taken away, wouldn't take it away because mm-hmm. I, I, I will find a way to continue to move forward in, in who I am. Will it be hard? Absolutely. Right. Any, any loss is incredibly profound and incredibly difficult, but the promises that I've made to myself because of those moments have have incredible effects on both me and the world that I've, that I've encountered, right. The, the social media following that I've, that I've uh, brought together the community that I've brought together, the people that listen to this podcast, I don't do this podcast for me. They know that, or for them, they know that I do it for me. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have conversations with you because I want to, not because I want my people to hear them. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just an added benefit, you know, but there's, there's so many things that I, every, every tragedy that I've gone through and I don't want tragedy, but I learn how to, I learn how to figure it out, learn how to work through it. And I want people to recognize that even though tragedy will befall you and the rest of humanity, there is a way through and, and to, to utilize it for your own strength and your own purpose. Um, and, and it, and that doesn't have to be a bad purpose. That doesn't have to be a criminal purpose or a malicious purpose. Um, though, you know, though people see that and do that, you don't have to. Right. And I, I want to be an example of that. I want to be a reminder that, you know, you can go through some hard shit and come out of it and build a community and, and, collect people that are good, you know, really good. Um, I love that, you know, I'm having a conversation with you of so many similar experiences mm-hmm. and we've come out of it in this similar kind of perspective on living and enjoyment and finding peace and, uh, relating to people and bringing people together. That is remarkable, you know, and I, I, I love that we can do that and we have the technology and the ability to, even though, you know, I would probably never meet you outside of uh, this podcast. I now have had the opportunity to listen to your words and your stories. And it's only going to kind of push me in a direction of, I need to keep doing this. I need to keep enjoying this. Um, and I, you know, I love podcasts like these where I'm like, I'm just enthralled with the conversation and I, I love, the, the, you know, sitting with the person across from me. It's just fantastic. And, you know, whether we're talking about conversation between two people or a bigger sense of community, I think this is one of the gifts of uh, a willingness to turn toward the tragedies of our lives. Yeah. It's opportunities to um, converse in this way to meet in this way let me change that not converse to meet in this way and be affected by that yeah it's certainly been a huge part of my experience the last two and a half years 
And um, it continues. And I feel that way the same as you do with regard to these podcast interviews. It's, a, it's an opportunity to kind of deepen my familiarity, my turning toward my own life and experience, and actually be affected by the life and experience of others, yep. which is really quite remarkable. Yep. And and not I don't think either of us would have been here had the uh, the tragic situations of our lives taught us how to question ourselves and then to identify that we don't need to question ourselves in that moment and push, push through. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, you know, simplistic, but a reality that is, is ever present, especially with me, right. I, I certainly know how to talk about me um, at this point because that's what I did. You know, I, if my dad hadn't ended his life, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be talking to you. Right. I, I would probably be, you know, going through something else or doing something else. But I know for a fact that, you know, this podcast is specifically tailored to push me out of my comfort zone of wanting to be an introvert and not wanting to talk to anybody at all, mm-hmm. right? which yeah. is hilarious because I'm a social media influencer and my job is to talk to people and <laughs> put my voice out there and, and be extroverted. And yet, my challenge is I don't fucking want to do that, <laughs> you know, and and it all kind of stems from that that conceptualization of what happened to me at six years old, you know, yeah. and now I actively push against that. I defy the the very nature that I've that I've built throughout my childhood, and and it's it's been a practice that I don't think I'll ever change. I, I love challenging myself at this point, and um. I love having these conversations because I know I, I don't want to go out and just start a random conversation with a random person uh, about the depth of these topics, even though I yeah. do, <laughs> because I challenge myself to. And once again, you know how interesting the parallels between our very different and very similar experience, because, you know, I, I too am an introvert. I mean, I meditate for gosh sakes, that is probably not a, a sign of an ex, an extrovert necessarily. And so, uh, you know, I too am an introvert and my tendency is, would be to step back. That would always be my tendency. That's my default. And um, the situation I find myself in now is asking me in all these different kinds of ways to step forward and to um, reach out to people like Dylan and say, hey, why don't we do an interview and, you know, explore that process and then come on here and um, talk about, you know, what it is I do and what it is I've been through. And it was interesting, you know, six months ago, I actually didn't talk very much. You know, I would come on to podcasts and I had some great conversations and some wonderful interviews and wonderful connections. But we talked about um, meditation almost exclusively. I didn't talk about the experience I went with through this dysfunctional relationship, through the end of the, this 20-year um, involvement in this community and all, so on and so forth. Um, that was a piece that remained step back. And I love that it's now coming to the fore because while it's still challenging to me as an introvert, it makes the conversations that much richer. Yeah. It just adds, it's like adding a flour to a stew. It's like a thickening agent, which is really quite delicious. And and you begin to learn more about yourself. Yeah. You know, the more you tell, the more you tell that narrative and that story, you know, you begin to become one remarkably clear 
because people will challenge you, right? Mm -hmm. And and people will ask questions and, and people will target the specific things that you don't recognize because you're relatively blind to yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the same time, because of that, you learn, well, yeah, maybe I was wrong there, you know, or, you know, maybe, maybe I was right there and I didn't even realize I was right. I was always assuming I was wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and if you, if you're open to it, you can learn, you can learn from it. If you're not, you know, obviously that's, it is what it is. You're going to, you're going to be who you are, but I, I love humility. I love the ability to recognize that one, I'm, I'm not right or wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not good or bad. Um, I am the collective understanding of what humans look at me and reference their own, their own idea of integrity and right and wrong and good and bad. Um, and then I also then look at myself and say, how does society look at it? How do I look at it? Right. And then I make my own decision. I, you know, for, for so many different things, I want to know what other people think is right and wrong for clarity. Right. I want to do what's right and wrong. You know, I want, I want to do what's right and I want to minimize what I do that is wrong, but there are situations where it's important to do what's wrong because it, it's a representation of a misunderstanding within culture, within society and, and, uh, progressing into the future of saying, you know what, I don't think that's, I don't think that's how we should do things. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and one of the things that I kind of push into now is, uh, you know, the mental health system, you know, and I'm a mental health coach. I'm not, I'm not a certified or qualified individual to, to do therapy or, you know, I'm not a psychotherapist or anything of the sort. I'm a mental health coach. I'm lived experience, baby. That's mm -hmm. it. Right. Um, am I the end all be all? No, but I can tell you what the majority of people that come to me are people that have been, uh, denied or hurt or traumatized by the mental health system to the point where they'll never go back. Right. And that's not me trying to say I'm better than the mental health system. I'm saying there's a legitimate need for people to have someone outside of the mental health system or the mental health system needs to transform so that they do not lose those people. Right. I think like when you look at therapy, right. And therapists, right. You're talking to people that are marginalized and isolated in society. And when you look at a business, right. Let's just think of like, you know, a, a grocery store. If you get a bad experience at a grocery store, what can you do? Google review, terrible one star, right. You go to a therapist you're talking about people that are marginalized and isolated who don't want to put their, their ideas forward, who don't want to talk about things, who don't want to express, right? Or maybe they do, but they just don't know how. You're probably not going to see, you might see a one star with nothing there. And most people are going to look at it and say like, eh, whatever, right? But you might not get the context of that. This therapist is bad, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I'm not saying all therapists are bad. I think majority of therapists are probably really good. And that's a remarkable thing, but there are bad therapists. There are also bad health coaches and life coaches. Um, and so like, I think the conversation really needs to happen where lived experience and the mental health system really need to come together so that we're not losing people because people are being lost, right? You know, 40 plus thousand people a year and their lives in America every, every year. And 
we can have conversations about that, right? I think therapists need to stop looking at life coaches like they're they're the worst, right? Or they're they're worthless. And life coaches and mental health coaches need to stop looking at therapists like they're the worst, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't understand. Right? It needs to be a conversation and and a collaboration, right? It's an and idea, just like we were talking about earlier, yeah, not a yeah. but idea. But at the same time, that doesn't feel right at times to push that narrative, to talk about that, to push into that um, because it feels accusatory, you know? And so they like following rules is important, but at the same time, you know, breaking the social rules to, to, to make change is also a requirement. Well, and I think, you know, breaking or perforating those social rules is often required in order to have the kind of conversations that we're talking about having here. Yeah. You know, and I think that, those come, one of the things that's been so remarkable in my own experience the last number of years is a recognition that um, interpersonal dialogue, conversation is an essential aspect of um, discerning what's actually going on, discerning that inner clarity, that inner wisdom. I mean, again, I'm a meditator. And so there's a default at meditator and an introvert. So there's a default to thinking, well, okay, it's something that you figure out when you're alone on the meditation cushion, following the technique. And it's an, and it's become an, and thing for me. Yeah. Okay. We have experiences and insights and inklings and directions and guidance and all that, that comes from that, um, context. And then we come together with others and we compare notes and we actually get a better sense of what is and what isn't going on. There's a collective quality. You know, when I'm talking about Buddha nature, basic nature, inner wisdom, I I always very much in my mind individualize it, but it's not an individualized thing. There's a collective quality that I think you're pointing to that comes up out in the interactions, in the conversations, and in the communities. When all of those interactions, conversations, and communities are held in a a way that encourages that openness, that spirit of openness and discovery. Yeah. Expression. Expression. You know, I I think there's there's a time and place for expression. There's times and places for no expression. Um, But, you know, majority of times we we limit, I think, especially right now, as much as certain, certain situations create openness of expression, we also limit it at at a, an alarming rate. Um, still, I think social media is a remarkably interesting kind of, uh, ecosystem where I think the, the, the openness of expression happens early on in platform history um where like early on facebook you could express yourself wide open right but then as facebook aged more more people came in to say wow i hate what you say there right mm-hmm. i dislike what you say there and then you you see the same thing instagram comes along people come on and and are free to openly say because it's it's only the people that want to openly discuss and talk about and express. Right. And so I think you see the more people jump on a platform, the more hate you see, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a consistent rule with what I've seen with social media. Um, And TikTok is now becoming that, that kind of toxic and uh, kind of almost disgusting place for people to be toxic and, uh, uh, hateful and spiteful and all the things, right? 
so eventually, right. I think humanity kind of does this is we're eventually going to get to a point where we continuously come out with new places to express ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, but that doesn't necessarily mean social media is perfect and it's wonderful and it's good. It's just, we need to find a way to express ourselves in places where we can actually have conversations right? Yeah, and make, you know, that's, that's, I think the challenge with the education system, even the country itself, politics, I mean, fucking politics, right. You're in Canada, but you know, it's the same thing in Canada as in the United States, right. Learning how to create a political system or media system that creates uh, discussion collaboration rather than pointed attacks and, you know, completely polarizing content. Will we ever be able to do that? I hope so. Hope, hope we'll be able to figure that out, but you know, the jury's out and, you know, likelihood is not soon. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think it's a long-term prospect. It reminds me, there's a Buddhist teacher by the name of Pema Chodron, and uh, she wasn't speaking exactly to what you're describing here, but it comes to mind. You know, she talked, there's a a paraphrase of hers that I I share a a lot, which is we need safe spaces so we can go to the places that scare us the most. And I think that's one of the ways of understanding honest conversation, honest dialogue is that um, because it's honest, there's a sense of uncertainty and unknowing, which is scary. Yeah. As opposed to knowing, I know exactly what this person's going to say. I know exactly where this conversation is going. Um, And we need, you know, those kind of conversations don't just happen. We need, um, those safe spaces that allow us to go to those places together. That is a remarkable quote. It's such a, such a poignant quote. I love it. I absolutely love it. But Neil, I feel like we could sit here for a couple hours and and continue talking, but uh, (laughs) um, I feel like we, we should probably try and wrap this up with, with some time, uh, some time before I have to go to another meeting, but um let me let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, with with all the things that you do, if there was one message you could leave the world, what would that be? Hmm. I think that the message that I would uh, want to leave is that we are uh, actually resourced beyond our wildest imaginations. We're actually resourced beyond our wildest uh, uh, imaginations. We can turn toward the difficult in our life and we can settle with the difficulty in our lives and we can um, receive the wisdom and guidance and direction that is waiting within these. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, we don't need help in any way. We don't need others as we've just been talking about. Others are an essential part of this journey. Um, but we can do it. We have the capacity to turn toward the challenges, the difficulties, the, ch- the tragedies in our lives, and to actually um, learn and grow from these experiences in a way that brings benefit to ourselves and actually brings benefit to the world of which you're a part. And the truth of the matter is, um, 
the kind of benefit that is brought to ourselves and more pointedly to the world of which we're a part. It's not a generic benefit. It's a benefit that only we with our lived experience can actually offer, which is one of the reasons why I think, you know, there's a, in my mind a certain, uh, I try to give people a lot of encouragement to do this work because I feel like the, there's a gift within all of us waiting to come out and, um, in order to unwrap that gift, yeah, we we need to turn toward the difficult, which we can do because we're resourced beyond our wildest dreams. I the reason I love that is is because everyone relatively says the same thing when when you think about like the self help industry and even the mental health industry. Um, we all just say it in a different way. Yeah. Right. And and I think that's important. Right. If we all are, if, if 7 billion people are talking about the same thing in different ways, that one person that needs to hear it is going to be able to find the way that, that makes sense to them. Yeah. Right. And that's it. That's, that's everything, right? If you, if you are struggling right now with anything, then, then take the time to, to research, go find people that speak about the topic that you were struggling with. Right. If you're struggling with trauma, go find all the people that you can who talk about trauma. If you're struggling with meditation, go find Neil. Go find anyone that talks about meditation. Right. It's continue to search. Right. Don't give, don't give up that that don't give up on anything. Right. That persistence is literally what will allow you to succeed. Just like my story about jujitsu. Right. It, it was <laughs> it was another month after I got my ass kicked you know, of, of ass kickings, but then I started to, to win. I started to, uh, learn different techniques that gave me the opportunity to, to continue winning. And eventually I, I was about, uh, a month away from getting my purple belt before I tore my first ACL. And, you mm -hmm. know, the, the, the history of my jujitsu time is, is now over, but at the same time, I'm happy. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was able to, uh, persist through, three ACL tears actually, as mm. of yesterday, now four, right? I, I don't even oh, have my. an ACL in my right knee, but my persistence will pay off because I went through sniper school last year without an ACL. Didn't know it, but I did. Right. And now I'm here. Uh, I'm going to get through the rest of my military career. I'm going to have surgery. I'm going to get through it by just not giving up. Right. And, and very few people that I've seen have an ACL tear in the military continue on, but I have, and I've mm. completed a, a lot of different things. I've overcome a lot of different things. Literally all you need is to keep going, to, to keep doing what you're doing, keep finding people that can help you succeed. Just like Neil's talking about. I, I really want people to take the time to recognize that they can, they can do it. You just need to keep going. So Neil, I, I just want to thank you. Uh, the conversation has been great today. Um, feel free, take a, take a minute to just kind of tell people how they, how can they reach out to you? How can they find you? Um, how can they find your, your meditations or your community? Uh, floor is yours. Great. Well, I mean, first thing is thanks for having me here, Dylan. And thanks for everybody who's listening. It's really been a, a, a treat. I really appreciate this opportunity on so many different levels. Um, and in terms of finding me, you know, of course, I'm in all the usual places, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, my 
podcast bringing meditation to life is on all the usual outlets but you know because what i do is actually fairly it's a fairly broad mandate it's fairly wide ranging you know there's really something for people at all levels and all backgrounds the best place to get a good sense of what i do is my website um neilmckinley.com i'm a rare mckinley that has an l a y at the end not an l e y if you look for neilmckinley.com you're going to end up somewhere else but neilmckinley.com um it gives you a sense of everything that i offer including the subscription based community i've mentioned a couple of times uh, the online gatherings which is really kind of becoming key to the work that i do specifically the work with community that i do um, and so, yeah, check the site out. If you're so inclined, sign up for my newsletter, because in addition to giving you a gradual introduction to everything I offer, in addition to giving you updates and teachings and special offers and all that kind of stuff, every month when that shows up in your email basket, you'll have a reminder of meditation. And this took me a while to learn. It's interesting. It's other people who taught me this, Dylan. Other people would say to me, like, oh, I got your newsletter. It's great. And I'd say, well, did you read it? And they'd say, well, no, I didn't even open the email. And I'd say, well, how do you know it's great? They said, well, because it shows up and it reminds me, oh, yeah, maybe I'll meditate this month. <laughs> and to begin with, I was really frustrated. And now I love that. If that's what that newsletter does, if it just reminds you that maybe meditation can have a place in your life, that's great. And so stay subscribed and I'll keep sending them out. So um, that is really the best place, neilmckinley.com and the wide range of offerings that are uh, represented offered there. I love it. I, yeah. <laughs> I love that because I, the, the little things you do as a business owner and a coach that you, you're trying to market yourself, you're trying to put out there and then, you know, like people don't take it the way that you thought they were going to take it. And then you're like upset at first, and then you realize that they're, they're taking it in a different way. And that's, that's, I should pay attention to that. <laughs> like, Very much so. That's the, the being a small business owner is an eye-opening experience and such a valuable one. Yeah, very much so. And it's it's <laughs> the, the feedback we get is so helpful, but so utterly not what I expect. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Neil, again, thank you. And for everyone that's listening, thank you as well. Uh, we always appreciate you. Make sure you leave a review or go ahead and just leave a comment on anything and hopefully i'll get back to you but thanks again and we'll get you next time on the dill experience and that is it